always tell when I followed someone taller than me in the pulpit. I've got to adjust that down. <clears throat> Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. And uh, I know it's a bigger crowd than certainly this morning. If there's anybody that was in the early morning service and you're still here, this message is going to seem suspiciously similar. <clears throat> but uh, I assure you this evening I will have a different uh, message than this one. Luke chapter 7. And uh, we'll begin our reading in verse 36, and I just want to say thank you for being here, and uh, though Pastor Schott is not here, thank you, Pastor Schott, for inviting me to come, and uh, I would encourage you to uh, give for his birthday, and uh, you have a good pastor, and uh, you ought to show your appreciation. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him weeping and began to wash his feet with tears and did wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed five hundred pence, And the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears. And wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. The title of my message this morning is 500 Pence Sinners. 500 Pence Sinners. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you clear our minds and open our hearts that we may hear from you. Father, I pray as the speaker this morning, as the one bringing the word, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you'd grant me your wisdom, that you would enable me to preach with power. And Lord, I pray that you would have liberty in this service and that where conviction is needed, you would convict us. And where comfort is needed, you would comfort us. I pray that you would do what only you can. I pray that if there's even one here that doesn't know Jesus Christ 
as Savior, that today would be the day of his or her salvation, and he or she would not leave this place uh, without uh, having assurance that heaven is home. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen. The Christian author C.S. Lewis once said, no creature that deserved redemption would need to be redeemed. The fact is, we need redemption precisely because we don't deserve it. Who among us here deserves to be saved? The problem for many Christians is that the more that time passes, the more they forget how much they needed to be saved in the first place. They forget how sinful they were. They underestimate how sinful they are. We get saved, we begin to learn the Bible, we come to church, we get around more mature believers, and God the Holy Spirit does His work in our lives. And in time, we don't look exactly the way we used to look, and we don't speak exactly the way we used to speak, and our attitudes begin to change, and we begin to uh, uh, not favor so much those sinful things that we used to cling to before salvation, and we begin to love the things of God, and that is as it should be, and it's a wonderful thing. But over time, we forget. We forget where we used to be. We forget where we might have been had Christ not saved us. And I am not suggesting that there is a time when we actually say, I have arrived, but slowly that attitude begins to creep up on us. And if we're not careful, we look at the lost world, and instead of being grateful to God for salvation, we think, I'm better than him, or I'm better than her, not because of anything we've even done, or even because of what Christ has done, but because we see their sin and we say, I'm better. That's what the Pharisee did. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ because of our faith in Him. He has imputed His righteousness to us. And yet, there is still that struggle of the flesh versus the Spirit. I don't know about you. I've been a pastor for quite a few years now, and yet I still struggle with individual acts of sin. And if we're not careful, we come to the place where we think that our position in Christ has somehow made our acts of sin a little less sinful. And that's not the case. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ has forgiven us, but our acts of sin are just as sinful as anybody else's. And so in our text, we see very, uh, two very different people interacting with Jesus one person is a woman. We don't know her name. We, uh, the, the text sort of reveals that she was not an invited guest at this dinner. Uh, it was not unusual in that day when there was a visiting rabbi or teacher, and that's what Jesus was considered by these people. In fact, uh, the Pharisee there even refers to Jesus as master. That means rabbi or teacher. It's not unusual if a teacher came that uh, people uh, would show up at the house wherever the teacher was dining and would uh, sit and listen to any instruction from him and ask questions, and uh, so it would not be that unusual for this woman to show up. 
but it's unlikely that she was invited. And uh, all that we know about her is that uh, we see what she did here. We'll get to that in a moment. But Simon the Pharisee said, she is a sinner. The other person in our story is this Pharisee named Simon. Now, this woman engages in several acts of worship toward Jesus while the Pharisee looks on in disgust. She washed his feet with her tears and she wiped them with the hairs of her head. She kissed his feet. She anointed them with ointment. She expressed a love and a devotion to Jesus that I think, honestly, if we were there, it would embarrass us. And yet, uh, we might even look at that and say, boy, that seems excessive. But the problem would not be with her, it would be with us. The Pharisee watched with a very proud and critical spirit. He had judged this woman to be very sinful, far more so than himself. He then judged Jesus to be a false prophet. Jesus was, in his mind, tainted by the sin of this woman because Jesus allowed this woman to worship him and to to touch him this way. Now, the Pharisees, I think if you've been in church for any length of time, if you've had Sunday school classes, you probably have some idea who they were. They were uh, a very strict sect of the Jews. Um, We often criticize them uh, for self-righteousness, but we need to remember that, uh, at least originally, the Pharisees were just people who set out to live according to the law. And uh, probably their downfall was... Uh, the Bible is just as an example. It says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Well, the Pharisees set about to tell you exactly what that verse meant. They would say, well, you can take so many steps without a rest, and you can do this, and you can do that, and this is permitted on the Sabbath day, but this is not. They, they sort of filled in the Bible's blanks. And uh, there wasn't a lot left to conscience between you and God when it came to the Pharisees. Uh, Both the Apostle Paul and Nicodemus were Pharisees. And for all of their faults, we know that they were sincere. They loved God. And Jesus Christ was able to reach them because of that sincerity, because they wanted to know the truth. So uh, those were the Pharisees. But if we're not careful as Christians, we can adopt very Pharisaical attitudes. We become very strict in our Christianity and our religiosity, and I am not here to suggest that that is a bad thing, but we can begin to think because of those things, well, I do this and I don't do that, I am better than someone else. I'm better than other Christians, and I'm certainly better than the lost. The fundamental difference between this woman and the Pharisee was their attitude towards personal sin. The woman had an appreciation for the depth of her own sinfulness. She knew that she needed God's forgiveness. And she, based on her worship here, knew that Christ was the instrument of that forgiveness. By the way, it was the woman, not the Pharisee, who was able to worship Christ. And she worshiped because she understood the magnitude of her own sin and consequently the magnitude of her forgiveness. On the other hand, we see the Pharisee here. He thought he was living a pretty good life. And, you know, I I have to say, in witnessing to people, I hear this from time to time in messages. I hear preachers talk about this where they'll say someone has lived a particularly wicked life 
and the gospel is presented to them and they say, I could never be sick. God could never forgive me. Can I be very candid with you? I've never run across a person like that. I've never run across a person who thought that he or she was beyond redemption. But I've run across a whole lot of people who didn't think their sins were that bad. And it was not the wicked man who didn't get saved because his sin was too great. It was the self-righteous man who just didn't think his sins were that bad. Many people recognize that they're sinners, but they don't think their sins are enough to send them to hell. They don't see the sinfulness of their own sin, and as a result, they never get saved. And let me just say, they can't get saved because they're never convicted. You say, but I'm a Christian. I, I, I know that I've sinned against God. And there was a time in my life when I came to Christ and said, you're my only hope of salvation. I, I believe you paid for my sins on the cross, and you resurrected in triumph over sin. And I, I trusted Christ, and... I'm glad for that, and you may be saved, but have you forgotten how sinful you were? And if you've forgotten how sinful you can sometimes be? Have you forgotten that we live by the grace of Jesus Christ? I would submit to you this morning, we have undervalued and underappreciated the worth of Christ's forgiveness, even in the church of Jesus Christ. So what is our obligation this morning? For every person here, saved or lost, we must recognize the value of Christ's forgiveness. You say, how can I do that? If you're going to recognize the value of Christ's forgiveness, you need to understand the magnitude of your own sin. The magnitude of your own sin. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, and the it there is saw the way the woman was worshiping Jesus, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. You know, the contrast in this one verse cannot be any clearer. The Pharisee criticizes Jesus, not openly, by the way, but in his heart, because Jesus allowed this woman to touch him. And the Pharisee considered her to be a sinner. What is not stated there is, if she was a sinner, what did that make him? Righteous, right? I'm not a sinner. I'm better than her. That's, that's sort of the unwritten thing that is, underlies this whole story. We are deluded in arrogance if we ever come to the place that we think we're superior to others because of their sin. If we think that our sin is not that bad, not that sinful. Not only are we arrogant, but we fooled ourselves. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, Solomon wrote, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. You can dissect that verse and parse it any way you like, but it speaks for itself. Nobody is truly just. Nobody does good all the time. Everybody sins. And uh, in other words, the pastor stood in, in need of salvation just as much as the prostitute and the drug addict. We all have a need for the redemption of Jesus Christ. And if we're going to understand the depth of our own sin, we need to understand sin's physical and spiritual consequences. And there are both. First, the physical. What type of woman do you think this was when you read? The Bible says very little about her. 
And yet when I read the passage, there's sort of this image that pops into my mind. Imagine it to yourself, and you don't have to say it out loud, but what image comes to your mind when you read these verses? The Bible doesn't really tell us what she's done. But I think we can engage in some educated speculation, and certainly I'm not dogmatic on this at all because the Bible is silent on it. But the Pharisee knew who she was. Those seated at the table with him likely knew who she was. My guess is that her sin had earned her a public reputation for wickedness. And though the Bible does not say, many commentators are willing to fill in a few blanks, and I've read a few of those over the years. Uh, I would, uh, if I were hazarding a guess, I would say it's likely that she was involved in some sort of sexual sin that became public knowledge. Perhaps she committed fornication and bore a child out of wedlock. Perhaps she committed adultery and lost her marriage. Could have been some other thing. But whatever she had done, everybody knew what it was. And in fact, the Pharisee thought that her presence was hurting the reputation of Jesus. And if we're being honest, he probably thought that it hurt her reputation, or his, his reputation, just the fact that she was there in his home. And I would, to put this in perspective, can you imagine the scandal if your pastor started hanging out with loose women? Let me say this about sin and its physical consequences. Sin will enslave you. It will addict you. And we need not only the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, but we need the freedom that Christ's forgiveness provides us. I think about this often. Uh, you know, people are all different. Some people have more uh, obsessive and addictive personalities than others. And all I'm going to tell you is, I don't know where I would be if I weren't saved, but in my mind, I imagine it would not be a very good place because I have one of those types of personalities. And thank God for the freedom that comes from knowing Christ. Because the physical consequences of sin are damaging. And if you don't believe that, you know, we have a crisis in America. We talk about the opioid crisis, but there's a crisis in America of homelessness, and much of that is due to the drug problem. It's not economic. As bad as the physical consequences may be, they are just the tip of the iceberg. The spiritual consequences are far worse. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 and 2 tell us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save Neither is ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Oh, what a terrible thing that God would not hear our prayers because we've allowed sin and entrance into our lives, and we refuse to confess it, and we refuse to ask God to forgive us, and we refuse to forsake it and repent. Sin causes a separation from God. For the unsaved, it is a break in the relationship. And if left unbroken, the unsaved will spend eternity in the lake of fire. Psalm 9, verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell. For the saved person, sin does not break that relationship, but it does break the fellowship. And we do not enjoy fellowship with God when we are indulging sin when we're not rightly relating to God, it affects several other areas of our lives, including worship and service and prayer. 
And the answer is to remind ourselves often of our own capacity to commit sin. Paul was a pretty good guy before he got saved. I know we tend to look at the Bible and we say, well, here was a guy that was on his way to Damascus to round up Christians and bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. Here's the guy that stood holding the uh, coats while uh, Stephen was stoned. But if you look at the life of Paul, uh, Paul had had studied under one of the great scholars of of, uh, Judaism, a man named Gamaliel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrew, he says. And yet, if you were to ask Paul, what is your summation of your life. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You know what? That, that Pharisee who had studied the Hebrew scriptures needed salvation as much as this woman who's weeping and kissing the feet of Jesus. Paul never lost sight of his own sinfulness. And as a result, he did not elevate himself in carnal pride. He understood that Jesus was in the business of saving sinners and using them to further his kingdom. The woman in our text and the Apostle Paul, they may seem as different as night is from day, and yet they had a lot in common. Both of them knew they had been forgiven, and both of them had an appreciation for that forgiveness because they understood the depravity of their own sin first and foremost. And so we come to an appreciation and recognize the value of Christ's forgiveness, first by understanding the magnitude of our own sin, secondly, by measuring the payment at the cross. Now, we need to tabulate that thing. What exactly did Christ do for us at the cross? Look at verse 40. And Jesus answering unto him, uh, or Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, that is teacher, rabbi, say on. Go ahead, Jesus, speak your peace. And Jesus says this, There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint. But this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little little is forgiven, the same loveth little. By the way, everything he describes there, it was sort of customary when you went into someone's home. People back then would wear, um, you know, open shoes or sandals and and uh, on the roads, it was, it was not paved. It was dusty and dirty, and there might be garbage, and there was animals going through the street, uh, leaving behind all of their little presents. And so it's, uh, it's customary when you went into someone's house to wash your feet, and yet Simon provided nothing like that for Jesus. And it was customary to greet a guest with a kiss, and 
Jesus received no kiss, and it was customary for them to provide uh, some oil or ointment for them to anoint their head. And again, that was never, never happened. But this woman, she washed Jesus' feet. She gave Jesus a kiss. She anointed Jesus. Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisee. He knew that Simon was self-righteous. And so in order to explain to the Pharisee why this woman expressed such devotion, Jesus used a parable about two men who were debtors. They owed the same creditor. One man owed 50 pence and the other 500 pence. Now understand, a penny, or pence is plural, a penny, a penny or a denarius was one day's wage. So you think about 50 pence, that's about two months, I mean, of working. It's pretty good debt. I wouldn't want to have to pay it off, but people do it all the time, don't they? I mean, you think about what you make in two months, and people finance cars and education and take out home loans and any number of things. But the other person owed 500 pence. It's 500 days' wages. Almost two years' worth of wages. And again, not to say that it would be impossible in today's day and age living in America to pay that off, but the Bible makes it clear here that neither one of them could pay the creditor. It really didn't matter if that 50 pence were 5 million pence. Couldn't pay it off, didn't have the money to, didn't have the ability. And so the Bible says the creditor wrote off the debt for both men. And as a point of logic, it only makes sense that the one whose debt was larger, and it was ten times larger, would be more appreciative of the creditor's absorption of that loss and writing off of that debt. And this parable is a, a, a picture of what Jesus did for us. We have sinned against God. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is debt. Uh, is, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. The wages of sin is death. If we had to pay the debt for our sin, we would spend eternity in the lake of fire and never get out. No matter what we do, we can't pay it off. And that's consistent with the parable. It doesn't matter if, if you were the, the guy that owned 50 pence or the guy that owned 500. You could work and work and work, and you would never pay off the debt. In a similar way, your sin has put you in debt to God, and it doesn't matter how good you are. The Bible says your righteousness, not even your sin, but your righteousness is as a filthy rag. Work forever. Never pay off the debt. We also need to understand that in order to forgive a debt, payment must be made. You know, I've worked for a number of manufacturing companies over the years, and I'm involved in business, and every now and then we'll ship a product on credit. And the receiver of that product does not pay us. And you know how it works. You call them, you email them, you, you try to uh, uh, get them to pay their debt, and there's usually promises, I will, I will, and then they don't, and after a period of time, you just say, okay, and it's written off. Well, hey, that debt did not magically go away. Someone had to pay for the product that you shipped to your customer, and you know who paid for it? The manufacturer did, or the company that sold it did. In a similar way, when your sins are forgiven, it's not that the sin just magically disappeared, but somebody had to pay for that sin, and that somebody was Jesus Christ at Calvary. 
The spiritual parallel is simple. We owe a debt because of sin, but Christ has forgiven our debt. You say, how did Christ forgive our debt? How can he cover the payment of sin? Well, he paid the debt of mankind's sin by willingly dying on the cross. And it really doesn't matter if you're a 50-pence sinner or a 500-pence sinner. Jesus died for you. Not everyone has stooped to the same level of degeneracy, but everyone stands in need of forgiveness. Everyone is a sinner, and everyone needs Christ's payment for sin. And Jesus had to die on the cross and shed his blood for the sins of the pastor as much as the sins of the vilest sinner outside the walls of this building. And if you ever get to thinking that your sins are not that bad, I would encourage you just to look at the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ suffered a crucifixion that is unimaginable so that your sins could be forgiven and mine as well. His physical suffering cannot be accurately described, but in addition to that, he suffered a separation from his father on the cross and cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is because he was bearing the sins of the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 says, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That word propitiation, we don't use it much, but it means the appeasement or the pacification. It also means the ransom price. Christ became the satisfactory payment for sin. And, and let me just say this as well. Christ did die on the cross for your sins, but praise the Lord, he didn't stay dead. I mean, the, the hope of mankind is not the, simply the death of Christ, but it is, in fact, his resurrection. Plenty of people died by crucifixion under the old Roman Empire. But Jesus was unique in that he bore your sins and he was resurrected in triumph over sin and over the penalty of sin, which is death. So what does it mean to be forgiven? The Bible says here in 1 John 2, 2, that he didn't just die for your sins or my sins or the sins of just people in this building, but he says for the sins of the whole world, and yet the whole world is not the beneficiary, are they? I mean, they are not, the whole world is not saved. What does it mean to be forgiven? It means that you have received in a personal way the payment for sin that Jesus Christ made when he died on the cross and was resurrected. And let me just say, you cannot value this forgiveness without understanding the price. There was a price to be paid in order for you to be forgiven. And so we need to recognize the value of Christ's forgiveness by understanding the magnitude of our own sin and by measuring the payment at the cross, but finally by carefully considering the grace of salvation. If we're gonna understand the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness, we need to consider the grace of salvation. Look at verse 48. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. To the others seated with Simon, probably also Pharisees, people of like mind, the idea that Christ had the power to forgive sins seemed to them scandalous. Who does this Jesus character think he is that he can run around telling people that their sins are forgiven? And the answer is easy. He's God. And as God, he has the power to forgive sin. 
And I love what he said in the Gospel of John, I have power to lay down my life and I have power to take it up again. Only God can make that claim. And Jesus justifies this woman to the crowd and in doing so, and we read that in verses 40 to 47, he, in justifying the woman to the people, the others seated there at the table, he shows them her works. He Justification just means to be declared righteous and to show her righteousness to them. He says, hey, wait a minute. This lady has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them uh, with the hairs of her head, using it as a towel. She's kissed me, uh, you know, kissed my feet, and she's anointed them with oil. He, she pointed, or excuse me, Jesus pointed to her actions. But when dealing with her directly, he says, thy faith hath saved thee. Salvation is not of works, it is of faith. The works are a result of faith, not the other way around. You can never work your way into faith, but rather when you trust Christ as Savior and God the Holy Spirit moves into your heart, then He begins to work on you from the inside out, and oftentimes good works are the results. Amen. I'm glad for that. But don't you ever get to thinking that your works have somehow put you in good standing with God. That is not the case. That is heresy, to be quite frank. And then Jesus says to the woman, go in peace. It would be enough for me if God's grace saved me from my sins only. But God's grace does so much more. It enables us to serve God and to worship Jesus Christ. Think for a moment about the infinity of God's grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 declares, where sin abounded... Grace did much more abound. I don't care how, I have, listen, I don't care what you've done. There are people here, if you're like me, I, I got saved at a fairly young age. And uh, it was always troubling to me, if I'm being 100% honest, because of how young I got saved, it always troubled me that I did worse things in my life after salvation than I did before. I would simply say that's a matter of opportunity more than anything else because my dad's a pretty strict parent. But anyway, uh, understand this. The grace of Jesus Christ continues with you after you're saved. And when we sin, God's grace abounds beyond our sin. In his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer wrote, to abound in sin, that is the worst and the most we can do. The word abound defines the limit of our infinite abilities, and although we feel our iniquities rise over us like a mountain, the mountain nevertheless has definable boundaries. It is so large, so high, it weighs only this certain amount and no more. In other words, if you could pile up your sin, all of it that you'll ever commit in your life, there is still a limit to it. And Tozer goes on, but who shall define the limitless grace of God? It's much more plunges our thoughts into infinitude and confounds them there. All thanks be to God for grace abounding. What Tozer was saying here is he was explaining Romans chapter 5 verse 20 where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. If you could stack up all of your sins, they would sink in the ocean of God's grace. God's grace does much more than provide a fire escape from hell. It continually demonstrates the attitude of God towards mankind. The very thought that God would want any of us to serve Him is beyond my understanding. And it is because 
of God's grace that he allows us to serve him. He gives us that privilege. I've heard this saying applied to many people most recently. Uh, it was said to, I, I've never heard who originally said it, but I've heard J. Vernon McGee, but I'm not sure if that's true. But it, the, the saying is simply this, if you knew what kind of a person I was, you would not allow me to preach to you. But if I knew what kind of a person you were, I wouldn't waste my time. I don't deserve to be a pastor, and I don't deserve to stand before you and preach this morning. But God has called me. And by his grace, he enables me. And I don't know what sins you've committed or what evil you've done in your life, but let me encourage you. God's not finished with you yet. Your sins have not made a dent in his grace. Not only can God use you to serve him, but he loves you so much and he wants you to serve him. And it's a privilege to serve Christ. All you have to do is make yourself available to him. And I could tell you a million stories of preachers who were as far from holy as one could get before they were saved. And Christ saved them and turned their lives around and, and uh, uh, enabled them to serve the Lord. God uses imperfect people to preach his perfect gospel. And I'm so glad that God is long-suffering and his grace is limitless. And my life, as a point of testimony, my life is so much better than it otherwise would be had God not saved me and called me to preach. And how can I quantify the worth of God's grace? It's, it's beyond my abilities. And if you're going to recognize the value of Christ's forgiveness you need to consider his grace. When we look into this passage of scripture, we see this woman weeping. And do you understand the Bible never tells us why she weeps? Never really discloses her heart other than we understand she valued her forgiveness. Jesus does let us know that. She understood her sins, which were many, had been forgiven. But I have to think it's a little bit like Something I read, there was a man many years ago, there was a revival in Wales in the early 1900s. And there was a man who was a part of that, and many years later he wrote a book called I Saw the Welsh Revival. And at the height of the revival, he described the church services at that time, and he said at the same time in the church service you would see someone weeping, and maybe just down the pew you would see someone else laughing. The one weeping was weeping over their sin, under conviction. And the one laughing was one who was just joyous at the thought that they were saved and they had been forgiven by God. And there's a lesson there for us. Our sin should break our hearts, but God's grace should fill us with the joy of the Lord. None of us deserve redemption, but all of us need it. If you're saved this morning, you need to remember every single day what God has done for you. Oh, remind us, Lord. And if you're not saved, let me tell you that God loves you more than you'll ever know. And he has provided a way for you to know God through the sacrifice of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Only when we recognize the forgiveness of Christ will we ever serve or worship Christ the way he designed. 
And if we would spend a little bit of time thinking about what Christ has done for us, it would be a good antiseptic against pride. It would make us grateful for what God has done. Salvation is a work of God, not man. And let's take a lesson here from this woman in our text, and let's learn from the mistakes of the Pharisee. You need to measure the magnitude of your own sin. You need to consider the price that Christ paid in order to forgive you of your sins. And you need to live according to the grace that Jesus Christ extends when he forgives you of your sins. Every person must recognize the value of Christ's forgiveness. Let's pray. With heads bowed and eyes closed, it would be a tragedy if someone here did not know Christ as Savior and they left this service in that lost condition. I want to say publicly that uh, if you're not saved, my sincere desire is that you get saved. And I would not in any way embarrass you. I wouldn't call your name out. I wouldn't want to make you uh, feel uncomfortable. Every person who's been saved has, at a time, been unsaved. And if you're not 100% sure that you know Christ as Savior, would you raise your hand? I'll pray for you. Anyone at all in our service this morning, you say, Pastor, I'm not 100% sure I'm saved. If I die today, I don't know that I would go to heaven. All right, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use the, the word of God to convict our hearts and to challenge us. Uh, I pray that we'd be grateful people. Pray that we'd be humble people. And I pray that we would appreciate the forgiveness uh, that you have provided through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.